I have a love-hate relationship with the New York Post, of which I am a daily reader. They are consistently scummy in their coverage. Crime fear-mongering, race-baiting, you name it, the New York Post has got it. Along with some legitimately devoted local reporting. But I read page six, its gossip column, because I know the Post will go there, for better or for worse. The paper's gender politics are remarkably consistent. Through the years, even as the nation has become more conscious of ingrained sexism, the Post has stood athwart change and said, eh, we're good. So it's perhaps no surprise that one of our boldest examples of naughty Audie's sexism comes from the good people at the New York Post. On November 29, 2006, the paper splashed the headline, Bimbo Summit, across its front page. The accompanying picture was of Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears, and Paris Hilton squashed into the front seat of a sports car. Here's a clip from a paparazzi video that shows the moments leading up to that shot. In it, Lindsay is addressing allegations that Paris had hit her. Me too. What's going on? Paris never, Lindsay, she's my friend. Everyone lies about everything. She's a nice person. Please leave us alone. There's a little back and forth with the paps. I've known her since I was 15. Please stop trying to make us hate each other. Oh, this is classic. Oh, wow. The, oh, this is classic from the photographer, is a reaction to the fact that all three women, all wildly famous for their partying at the time, have piled together for a photo. You probably need a little more context. This guy can help. I'm Matt. I am the proprietor of popculturedineinin2009.com, which I started when I was uh, 14 or 15 years old. I was in my sophomore year of high school in the fall of 2013. Matt James is a 23-year-old archivist of the 2000s. Growing up on Long Island, he was bombarded with the images from his mom's star and People magazines and the Anna Nicole show playing on E! Young Matt was taken by the frenzy and magnitude of it all. It seemed like... It was almost this fall of Rome period. It it was the last wild years before we would enter this post-culture period that we are in now, where there isn't really a popular culture anymore. Matt, per the name of his site, believes that our best pop culture years are behind us. It was the last time that maybe you didn't know anything about the person next to you, but chances are you both knew Lindsay Lohan, you know, crashed her Mercedes-Benz into a tree and that she was an idiot. The monoculture. Yeah. Matt's obsession is nostalgia for that monoculture. Pop Culture Died in 2009 is his painstaking documentation of print magazines and old gossip columns. He can tell you all the good dirt off the top of his head, like he's going to do right now with the whole Bimbo Summit incident. All it requires you to do is remember what we learned last episode, that Paris Hilton's friend, Brandon Davis, called Lindsay Lohan firecrotch to TMZ cameras in 2006. Okay, here's Matt. That sets the war into motion. And over the summer, you have these acts of retaliation, run-ins at nightclubs, uh, dance-offs at parties, all alleged, all according to the tabloids. Dance-offs, a more innocent time. Also, the war Matt is referring to here takes place between Lohan and Hilton. Not that Paris was ever 
distant from drama, but it was creeping up more and more since she had just fallen out with Nicole Richie. And um, she was looking for a replacement BFF, so she was cycling through Kimberly Stewart. As in, do you think I'm sexy singer Rod Stewart's daughter? She partied with Ivanka Trump a couple of times, and eventually Kim Kardashian would enter the picture. But at one point, Lindsay was her uh, best bud, and Lindsay had then dyed her red hair blonde and was starting to look like a Paris clone. America was shocked when their favorite cute redhead turned to the bleach. And then they had fallen out, allegedly because Paris's subsequent boyfriend after Paris Latsis, Stavros Niarchos, another Greek shipping heir, had hooked up with Lindsay after he and Paris had split. That's when Fire Crotchgate happened. At that same time, in November of 2006, Britney Spears files for divorce from Kevin Federline. And she's looking to blow off steam, so she ends up becoming Paris's new party pal. So Paris and Britney start partying in Vegas before bringing the uh, antics back into L.A. And Britney's not wearing underwear, and they're out every night. Unfortunately, there was a period when there were a lot of crotch-shot paparazzi photos. Very, very exploitative stuff was mainstream tabloid fare. Finally, one night, they link up with Lindsay, who hours earlier had told paparazzi that Paris had hit her at a party the night before and was showing off her, her bruised arm and saying, she hit me, it's not okay. But hours later, they're all crammed into Paris's car. Supposedly, this was the doing of Elliot Mintz. No, it was not set up. That's Elliot, Paris's publicist, a well-dressed older gentleman with an overtended tan. I asked Lindsay if she had any transportation. She said that she had been dropped off. So I said, well, let, let me help you with the umbrella. You're going to get soaked. Sorry. Back to Matt. Who tried to use the photo op as a cover-up for Lindsay's previous allegations, have her roped into the photo with the other two, and it will seem like they're all friends and that Lindsay was lying. Okay, it's a lot. Or more to the point, it's a lot of inane stuff that people get mad about in their early 20s that's actually not all that interesting. In 2022, these kinds of feuds would play out via Instagram unfollows or passive-aggressive subtweets, sort of the territory that the Real Housewives now occupy. But in 2006, text messages cost 10 cents, and you had to actually confront people in person. The fact that this petty feud and its ensuing publicity stunt made the cover of the New York Post says a lot about 2006. The paper ran a whole piece that was empty of any substance other than finding various ways to strongly imply that the three women were drunk floozies. Why waste the column inches? Simple, of course. Those women sold papers. That's true of basically all celebrity media. Women move product, whether it be a paper or a magazine or a movie. When people say sex sells, let's be real. They kind of mean women sell. In many ways, celebrity media and the entertainment business are dedicated to packaging people as products. But women's packaging matters more. And how to build a woman, Hollywood style, involves not just talent, but good looks, infamy, 
or at least a certain je ne sais quoi. Implicit in that is exploitation. Hollywood and the media did and do exploit women. But there's also a way in which 2000s celebrity was shifting things, letting certain women cut themselves in on the deal. They could benefit directly from that media exploitation. It wasn't exactly a feminist dream, but the money was real. Here's Ben Whittacombe, the former gossip columnist and TMZ alum we met last episode. My feeling, having watched her since 98, is that everything that millions of 17-year-olds are doing in their bedrooms every week of the year, trying to get a TikTok or a YouTube persona going, is, whether they know it or not, is following a playbook that Paris Hilton invented um, in about 1999, uh, before the rise of social media. Ben called Paris the first model of the attention economy. That's what Instagram runs on today. You know Instagram, that company that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. The attention economy is profitable, but it's not always great for women. I can't help but think about all those teenage girls in their bedrooms scrolling and feeling bad about themselves. Paris Hilton got even richer from her antics, playing the system that was slotting her into a stereotype. But she's also had to live the rest of her life with a party girl reputation, the butt of jokes. It's a dangerous game to play with yourself. It breaks rather than makes a lot of women. And in the 2000s, a lot of us who are watching along at home got a lot of screwy ideas about what our value was in the world. I'm just one former teenage girl, and I can't speak for anyone else, but I'm still trying to untangle what it did to me. From The Ringer, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. 
While Paris Hilton's fame would eventually be inextricably linked to TMZ perp walks and kits and shopping sprees on Robertson Boulevard, her origin story is a very New York one. In 1996, Paris and her sister Nikki moved with their family from L.A. to New York and started hitting the nightlife scene. They were teens, but the New York press covered them as though they were adult socialites, mentioning how mature Nikki looked for her age and noting how freely they drank underage. By the time Paris was 18 and Nikki was 16, they got a photo feature in The New Yorker, which I find to be pretty hilarious. Vanity Fair followed them around, getting very on-the-nose quotes from their mother, Kathy Hilton, like, I always raised them to be exposed and to be part of everything. Kathy, for her part, is now a star on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. The Hiltons were friends with people like Donald Trump, another rich person who was eager to be famous. Paris Hilton and Donald Trump's paths actually crossed quite a bit through the years. Paris signed with Trump's modeling agency right before she broke out into national and international stardom, and he was someone who helped facilitate her early page six fame. Here she is talking about Trump in November 2016 on Australian TV. Your book, uh, Confessions of a Mayoress, has a quote on the back from Donald Trump. I've known Paris Hilton for much of her young life and I've always recognised her as a great beauty. But what people don't know is that she's a great beauty on the inside as well. Is it weird now that you've got a quote on the back from the President of the United States? It's pretty amazing. I've known him my entire life and he's always been incredibly supportive of me. So um, I'm very proud to have that on my book. Did you vote for him? I've known him since I'm a little girl, yeah. so, yes. Here's Ben Whittacombe. The Hiltons and the Trumps go way back for many generations, and I really do see a, a, a synthesis between how the Hiltons and the Trumps built their profile, both of them with traditional plutocratic backgrounds, both of them embraced fame, all the way to the White House. There's that attention economy again. It's not just for selling hair vitamins. It's also for selling presidents. Paris's big breakout was undoubtedly The Simple Life, a reality show on Fox that she starred in with her friend Nicole Ritchie in 2003. The premise was that the two rich kids would head to Arkansas and live and work with a normal family for a few weeks. I don't what know. is Walmart? It's like they sell wall stuff? No. What is it? <laughs> People loved it. Paris and Nicole were like Lucy and Ethel in Juicy Couture tracksuits. It was in the midst of the reality TV boom, and the show's ratings were through the roof. But there was also a darker thing going on with all the attention Paris was getting. A couple of weeks before the show premiered, a sex tape featuring Paris and her former boyfriend was leaked onto the internet. Here she is talking to Piers Morgan about that in 2011. Now when people look at me, they think that I'm something I'm not. Just because of one incident one night with someone who I was in love with, People assume, oh, she's a slut just because of one thing that happened to me. And it's, it's hard because I'll never, I'll have to live with that for the rest of my life. There would be a lot of talk over the next few years about sex tapes as an easy gateway to fame. The story of Kim Kardashian and Ray J's is a tangled one. But the narrative around Paris's tape has always seemed a little more clear cut. Her ex actually sold viewings of a full color version of the tape for $50 online. That's what we now call revenge porn. 
In an old paradigm of fame, the sex tape could have well been the end for Paris Hilton. But only a year or so later, her many businesses were booming. And when her sex tape came out, um, people tried to shame her for it. Uh, And I admire her for not allowing herself to be shamed. She was a young woman. She was not only in command of her sexuality, but she was enjoying it, which shocked people. How dare a young woman enjoy her sexuality? And my feeling is that she was called shameless, but what she was actually doing was refusing to carry shame, which is a, a very different thing. Elliot Mintz compared Paris and her cohort to another famous group of partying friends. Many, many, many moons ago, in Las Vegas, there was a group of uh, comedians and singers called the Rat Pack. And the Rat Pack, for those of your listeners who would not probably know many of their names, consisted of people like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. The press treated those guys as cool icons. Along comes Paris and some of her friends, and they go out every night. And they have a real good time. A real good time. But this time, the reaction is quite different. I observed hostility toward them for having a real good time. I saw an ageist, sexist response to the idea that women, 12 years ago, can do on a recreational level as well as any other level, any damn thing they choose to do. Paris Hilton's commercial appeal has always trafficked in her knowing how to play a part. Her old manager has said he wanted her brand to be about real-life Barbie. She was all sex and silliness. With the sex tape, she had had no say. With everything else, Paris realized that by playing a part, the dumb blonde, she could make oodles of cash. Here she is on Conan in 2004, promoting her book, Confessions of an Heiress. You say, act ditzy, lose things. That's advice that you're giving people. Act ditzy, lose things. Why? Because it's cute. It's cute? It's not always cute when you act. When, when, when an airplane pilot acts ditzy, it's not fun. I think it works for specific people, yeah. maybe. It's kind of cute when certain people do it, but when a brain surgeon's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so the book was a spoof. And these days, Paris says, so was her whole persona. But it's not clear how in on that joke the general public was. People wanted to see the dits. That's an easier way to view a wealthy, beautiful woman. In that same interview, Conan jokes about how many businesses Paris was juggling at one time. She was a corporate entity with real selling power. She moved product, and not just her own. Fraser Ross, the owner of the clothing store Kitson, credits her with putting his store on the map in 2003. After Hilton came in, so did other starlets. And that basically started a viral marketing campaign for his boutique, which has since become synonymous with the ill-advised fashion of that era. Well, I mean, back then, I mean, Paris Hilton with To Be Free Sweats, um, Jessica Simpson with her Word t-shirts, Lindsay Lohan, you know, she wore that skinny bitch t-shirt that went around the world. You know, all the reality shows were filmed in the store. We filmed, you know, The Simple Life and The Kardashian Show. Kitson was a see-and-be-seen kind of place. The young, club druggy, that's hot, Hollywood girls who hung out at Avalon at night were shopping at Kitson during the day. 
you know, it's like a restaurant, but in a retail version. Because, you know, they can't really be walking out of Chanel or Gucci. It's not accessible to their fans. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, throwing them in the, maybe, oh, I can afford this and you can't. So we sold everything. And, and it was casual L.A. California attire that everyone wanted. By the way, sometimes the stars who shopped at Kitson brought the nighttime club drug atmosphere. Well, I mean, I can't tell you who, but I can tell you what happened. There was a vial of cocaine left in the bathroom. And I, you know, I'm not a cocaine person, but I didn't know what the hell it was. And I'm like, oh my Jesus Christ, let me get this out of here. Even though Fraser said he didn't really think a lot of people looked all that great in the fashionable clothes of the time, the frayed jeans, the sweats, he did appreciate the ones who understood that their currency in Hollywood was being in magazines. You know, I always told the celebrities Paris was the best at it. You know, she wanted the full body shot because her shoes could make it in the magazine. Some celebrities would be hiding. You know, they have an engagement ring on. You know, all that stuff back then. Certain celebrities got it. They could be in the magazine multiple times because of their outfits. More exposure meant more brand deals, more publicity for her show, bigger contracts, wider international reach. By the way, the tabloid coverage was great for Fraser too. His close relationship with Us Weekly soured, though. He claimed Us Weekly blackballed Kitson after Fraser sued one of the magazine's editors for not paying the costs of his book party. So Fraser sued Us. Fraser had also invested in Jill Ishkanian's paparazzi agency after she left Us. Remember Jill? And of course, the magazine had accused her of hacking into their emails. So let's just say Fraser developed a complicated relationship with the magazine. Kitson faded for a while, though it's had an unexpected reinvention. Fraser has turned the store's social media account into a conservative culture wars clearinghouse. They now sell slogan t-shirts that say, is that true or did you hear it on CNN? Paris, like Donald Trump, who was also on a hit reality show at the time, The Apprentice started in 2004, was good at being showily wealthy. Low-key rich people wear a lot of muted tones and go to main compounds for vacation. Paris favored Pink, Swarovski, and Dubai. And even in her worst moments, she was always selling. You know, when Paris got out of jail, three weeks later, she had her, her launch of her clothing line at Kitson. It was a zoo. We cl- the, there was helicopters in the air. There was thousands of people on the street. The streets were closed down. It was the first time to see her. No such thing as bad publicity, right? Paris might have been a national joke, a terrible role model, and perhaps single-handedly prolonged the unfortunate low-rise jeans trend. But she also understood her place in the American pantheon of capital. She was a good product, and she was there to profit off of what God, her mother, and Conrad Hilton had given her. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. 
Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Paris Hilton represented the young, drunk, trashy, and very commercially lucrative side of Hollywood women the side that was covered and nurtured by a burgeoning internet press and a ravenous traditional tabloid base. Your TMZs, your Perez Hiltons, your Us Weeklies. But the glossy magazines like Vogue and Vanity Fair and their cover stars, their movie stars, represented another equally lucrative side of Hollywood's obsession with women. If Paris and Lindsay gave us the seedy side of celebrity, the glossies kept us believing in the fantasy and glamour of it. It's almost like we needed both sides of the coin, the grubby one and the shiny one, to keep things appealing. Vogue was the highbrow leader in women's commercialization. Here's a clip from Morley Safer's 2009 60-minute special on the magazine and its editor-in-chief, Anna Winter. High above Times Square, Anna Winter oversees a small army of girls, coiffed, skinny, beautiful, and running scared. The worker bees whose job it is to inspire women to dream. I've read a lot of fashion magazines in my life, but Vogue has a special place in the canon. I subscribed, clipped my copies, got a kick out of articles about Austrian weight loss spas and columns authored by German aristocrats living in Bavarian country homes. In Vogue, Italian principalities existed even if they did not, on the list of actual nation-states. In the 2000s, Vogue was aspirational and highbrow. It never deigned to do things like give advice on men or sex. It was about aesthetic, and that aesthetic had a point of view. It was not welcoming, per se. It was exacting. The magazine had also become a massive player in celebrity culture under the stewardship of Anna Winter. Probably one of the reasons a celebrity-fixated teen like me picked up Vogue in the first place 
is because she pioneered the fashion magazine cover featuring celebrities, not models. Anna had some help with the celebrities. I'm Jill Demling, and I spent two decades at American Vogue booking celebrities, athletes, musicians, anyone that wasn't a model or a politician. Jill, I should say, is very familiar with Anna's world. You know the movie The Devil Wears Prada? Giselle played me in the movie, by the way. Really? Yeah, because I was Anna's assistant at the time, her first assistant, you know. Well, technically, Emily Blunt plays the first assistant, but we'll let that slide. I mean, I have no idea why Miranda hired her. Me neither. The other day we were in the beauty department, and she held up the swimwear eyelash curler and said, what is this? (laughs) When Jill would have started working for Anna was basically the peak of Condé Nast's powers. Condé is the publishing company that owns all the big glossy magazine titles that celebrities actually want to be in. Vanity Fair... Vogue, GQ, Glamour. Those were the places where you went to burnish your reputation, promote your movie, build or rebuild your image, and have your perfect picture beamed out to a teenage girl in middle America. I should mention that my current employer, The New Yorker, is a Condé Nast publication. There were certain actresses that the editors of Vogue were clamoring to dress. Ones who fit those exacting standards of the women who worked at Four Times Square. Nicole, leading to Charlize, um, Penelope, Renee Zellweger was someone we had on the cover a lot. Again, just a super talented actress. So she was very much, became a commercial name. Then Gwyneth. Gwyneth's another perfect Vogue girl, you know. A Vogue girl was basically thin, white, and vaguely patrician. And movie stars used the magazine to help shape how they should be viewed by the public. Like when Angelina Jolie was shooting the April 2002 cover. We were shooting with Annie Leibovitz. You know, Anna had a collection that she really wanted us to photograph, and I believe it was Tom Ford's, like, the caftans um, for YSL, maybe? And we kind of set up these different vignettes of, like, grass and wilderness. And she basically looked at the racks. And I mean, I don't even remember what she said because I think I was in shock. But she just, that wasn't her. She didn't, she wasn't going to wear those. A Vogue cover wasn't just an exercise in vanity for these women. It could mean increased business opportunities in the form of landing a makeup or fashion contract. It could mean increased Oscar buzz. Or it could mean an actress could change the narrative about who she was. Take Jennifer Connelly's 2004 cover. She had had Requiem for a Dream, a bunch of powerful films. But, I mean, I wonder if she even got to wear makeup in the films, you know, let alone have her hair done. I mean, she was like drowning in dark water and, you know, sand and fog crying. You know, it's, it, they're emotional films. It's not like she's getting to wear a Valentino dress with, you know, Pat McGrath doing her makeup. So I think for her, it was an opportunity to look glamorous. We did her as Elizabeth Taylor with Craig McDean, and it's this incredible, beautiful, smiling, it's modern, yet it's, it has some throwback feel of that old Hollywood star. So I think for her, that was an opportunity to show her to the world, to brands, and to film studios that she can be romantic, sultry, 
beautiful commercial even. Vogue covers pretty much always featured beautiful gowns with lots of blue skies and actresses who were styled like they were sitting for some pre-Raphaelite painter or a sergeant portrait. In Vogue, stars were not just like us. Highbrow as it was, Vogue was also driven by the coverage whims and fascinations of the tabloid press. If the public was interested in who was on the cover of Us Weekly week after week, then it behooved Vogue to feature her. It moved their magazines off newsstands. Everybody loves Sandra Bullock, so she's the woman you want to be best friends with and who you don't think is going to steal your husband and all of those things. She had three covers during the 2000s. Then there's like Drew Barrymore, who again, people feel they can relate to more. Relate to because she's so open about her struggles with, you know, alcohol. She's not a perfect size two. She's funny and sweet. Drew also had three covers. In the aughts, it was really only a certain set of actresses that got their Vogue moments. I took a look back at Vogue's covers from 2000 to 2010, and Nicole Kidman had the most at six covers. Charlize Theron, Kate Hudson, Sarah Jessica Parker, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jennifer Aniston, Kate Blanchett, Renee Zellweger, Angelina Jolie, and Kira Knightley all had multiple Vogue cover appearances. In that decade, there were only 12 covers featuring women of color. Halle Berry had two of those. The Olympic sprinter, Marion Jones, Selma Hayek, J-Lo, Jennifer Hudson, Beyonce, and Michelle Obama each had one. Models Leah Cabetta, Chanel Iman, and Jordan Dunn were also featured. Why were Vogue covers so white? I bet there were years where there were no Black people at Condé Nast. <laughs> That's Anna Holmes, the founding editor of the website Jezebel, which started in 2007 as basically gawker for women. The site was funny and profane, and had terrifying and hilarious personal essays about subjects like getting a couple of tampons stuck inside you for weeks. It also put the glossy women's magazines, where Anna Holmes had worked for most of her career, in its crosshairs. When Dodi Stewart, one of the site's original writers, applied for the job, she intuitively understood its mission. I wrote my letter to this anonymous organization as though I was writing to Anna Wintour, and it was like... I hate Vogue, There's everyone's so thin and rich and there's no people of color, but I still buy it anyway, love Dodi or whatever. We'll talk a whole lot more about race and the media on the next episode, but suffice it to say, Vogue had a narrow point of view. Beauty, they say, is in the eye of the beholder, and a lot of Americans were beholden to Anna Winter's conception of what is beautiful. Morley Safer with Anna again. An editor is, in the final analysis, a kind of dictator. A magazine is not a democracy. It's a group of people coming together and presenting ideas from which I pick what I think is the best mix for each particular issue. But in the end, the final decision has to be mine. That 2009 interview with Winter featured some Internet-only video outtakes that didn't make the show's main cut. And they show why only certain people got onto Vogue's cover. These video clips no longer appear online. I emailed CBS to ask why, and they said it was because the license had expired on third-party materials contained in the videos. The main interview still appears online, though, under the CBS imprimatur. 
Luckily, a number of outlets at the time, including Jezebel, transcribed Winter's web-only comments. There is a definite fixation on weight. For instance, Winter talks about how she told Oprah to lose weight for her 1998 cover. I said simply, you might feel more comfortable. She was a trooper. She totally welcomed the idea, and she went on a very stringent diet, and it was one of our most successful covers ever. Also, I'd just been on a trip to Minnesota, where I can only kindly describe most of the people I saw as little houses. Vogue did not return my request for comment. Listen, I know I'm not breaking any news to you when I say that fashion magazines and Hollywood in general value thin women. Over the past decade, there's been a movement towards greater inclusivity when it comes to body type. And if you're in your 20s, hopefully this stuff sounds absolutely wild to you. In fact, it's become the Internet's hobby over the past couple of years to suss out clips of old TV shows or interviews and re-examine the gender and beauty standards of the 2000s. It certainly gets repetitive, but I think it's cathartic for people. A lot of us are still living with those pathologies inside our heads. Once lodged in your soft, mushy teenage brain, certain things are hard to get out. I really absorbed stuff like America's Next Top Model weighing and measuring girls. I knew the calorie counts of everything, thought hip bones jutting out of the top of low-rise jeans was the ultimate goal. I knew the dress sizes of movie stars because magazines used to print stuff like that. J-Lo was a size 6, and people made a huge deal about how curvy and different she was. Even the phrase curvy still makes me squirm a little. It still feels like a euphemism that some unyieldingly thin creative director has slapped condescendingly onto a denim campaign. Here's Dodai again, talking about Anna Holmes's vision for Jezebel. Anna had a great mission statement back then that was like, why do we do this or something, or the about page. I forgot where it was. And it was basically like, which I bought into 100%, which was like, it's not even about this one woman or this one photo shoot or this one magazine. It's about this like systemic societal problem that we can see with our eyes, but like somehow no one's talking about. The problem was that as a woman in the magazines to derive any value, you either had to be fancy and skinny or trashy and skinny. You were proving a point about the ideal woman either way. I do think that there was a narrative there about like, what is a good woman? And it's like, She's married, she has a beautiful child, and she looks great on the beach. <laughs> like, honestly, like, I felt like those were the messaging. You know, she's, she's a certain type of body type that is acceptable. And they'd be like, still looking great at 45 or something, as though you're supposed to, like, just turn into dust. The glossies and the tabloids were different in many, many ways. But in essentializing women to their looks, to their personal lives... They were very much on the same page. For a more to-the-point commentary on all this, here's Anna Holmes. Because fuck Vogue, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And, you know, I think that one thing we were trying to do was to render those magazines irrelevant, or at least illuminate that they were somewhat irrelevant, because they were, and they were becoming more so. It's not just teen girls like me who were sitting at home absorbing all the bad stuff about bodies and beauty from afar. 
A lot of the women who were the media's fixation at the time were just teenagers themselves and very much not immune to those messed up cultural forces working on us. Places like VH1 used to run specials on the beauty and upkeep of young Hollywood it girls. How much they spent on mystic tan, on decorating, on waxing and nails. It was understood that we only cared about them because of their looks. You must look good at all times. If you look bad, you will be in one of those magazines as the worst dress for the week. And nobody wants to be on one of those lists. So it goes. I always think of Lindsay Lohan, who's my exact age, as a celebrity victim of the same bad messages a lot of us normal teen girls were getting. She was so much a fixation of the press that she merited her own VH1 lifestyle special. Enter the world of Lindsay Lohan. She's hot. She's rich. And a credit card. That's what I have in my purse. That's all you need. And she's living like no other teenager on the planet. Unlike Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan never seemed to be able to wrest any control for herself from the media frenzy that she found herself at the center of. She seemed trapped both by her own demons, her sublimely unhelpful parents, and the media environment of the 2000s. She got dragged down, and by 2010, at the age of 24, was telling Vanity Fair she wanted her career back. Hollywood, which had deemed her an it girl, had decided she was washed up. Lindsay Lohan had been a talent. She was a child model and actress with a breakout role at age 12 in 1998's The Parent Trap. In 2003, she starred in the teen hit Freaky Friday, then came Mean Girls in 2004. She quickly shot to fame, signing a record deal and finding herself the target of a lot of uncomfortable public speculation for a 17-year-old. Here's her tween sister, Allie, talking to VH1. When they said she got a boo job, I'm like, what are they talking about? She's like, you read about that? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, it's not true, Allie. Don't read that. Here's Lohan herself in a 2004 clip from On Air with Ryan Seacrest. You're, you're popping up everywhere on the cover of uh, Us Weekly, ladies and gentlemen. Take a look at this shot. Oh, yeah, teens gone wild. Look who's in the middle. Lindsay in the middle. She's flanked by the OC star Misha Barton and singer Hilary Duff, who Lohan had an alleged feud with over teen heartthrob Aaron Carter. No. There's a story about uh, you making out with Wilmer from that 70s show at a place in L.A., a Hollywood hotspot called Avalon. Is there any truth? Ooh. <laughs> any truth to that rumor? No, he's, we're good friends. I'm 17, he's 24. What can really go on there? Nothing. I he's, hope not. he's He's like an older brother to me, so, right. yeah. They announced they were dating later that year. By 2006, Lindsay was famous for lots of things besides her acting. That year, a few months before the infamous Bimbo Summit photos, a studio executive for the project she was working on made a letter to Lohan Public, writing, You have acted like a spoiled child and in doing so have alienated many of your co-workers and endangered the quality of this picture. She was constantly photographed partying, admitted to struggling with bulimia, was arrested for multiple DUIs, and went to jail and went to rehab many times over. She was obviously troubled. But Lindsay also had the unfortunate luck to be famous at the height of Perez Hilton's powers of mean. Here's Perez in 2005 talking with a drag queen, Amnesia. Now, for those who live under a rock, tell them what your page offers. My page offers, it's the most 
devilish gossip you will find <gasps> anywhere else. You can get on page 666.com the real dirt of what's going on with everyone from Brad and Angelina to Brittany to Lindsay Lohan or Hohan as I affectionately refer her to oh. her. Back then, Perez Hilton's blog was called Page 666. Page 666 had the gossip ethos of Page 6, but without the guardrails. No lawyers fussing about defamation suits or editors saying, oof, too much. Perez, whose real name is Mario Lavandiera Jr., had started the site in September 2004 and had gone on to work in New York for Bonnie Fuller's iteration of Star Magazine. He was later fired from the magazine and sued by Page Six. The party settled out of court, and Perez had to change the site's name, but it didn't matter much. The blog was a hit. It was also ruthless, especially to women. Perez called Kirsten Dunst, Kirsten Drunkst, and posted an uncensored shot of her bikini top falling off. Sienna Miller was deemed the not-very-clever, slutty Anna Miller for reportedly cozying up to Leonardo DiCaprio at a club. He mocked the sexuality of a celebrity child. He drew penises, and worse, all of her pictures of celebrities he'd cribbed from other sources. He made up spiteful nicknames for people he didn't like. He outed celebrities. And people loved it. They clicked like nobody's business. Perez wouldn't agree to do an interview for this podcast unless he was paid, so I couldn't ask him about that period. But he has spent the past decade or so saying he's sorry for the tone of his blog when it was at its biggest. Here's a 2019 clip from the show The Hills, New Beginnings, where Misha Barton confronts him. For reference, he called Barton things like mushy fartone and said she had cankles and cottage cheese thighs. If I could go back in time, and I say this on my kid's life, I swear, mm-hmm. if I could go back in time and do things differently, I would. Would you? Would I you would. really? A hundred percent. You I'm would certain. actually go back in I time and change all of those people's careers yes. you messed with, all of the people you outed. I just swore on my I mean, kid's think, life. Think about life. I just swore on the split of it. I just swore on my kid's life. I and you're shitting on me now? No one said he was great at apologizing. It wasn't just Perez who was openly terrible to women. In her 2020 memoir, Open Book, Jessica Simpson talks about the viral reaction to her wearing high-waisted jeans in 2009. Here she is on the Today Show talking to Hoda Kotb about it. This picture that circulated and went worldwide broke my heart. Like, the well, not the picture necessarily, but the caption like all the captions, and it was just viral. TMZ, for instance, headlined the photos, This is How She Rolls, as in rolls of fat, and wrote that she had to be double-belted into her mom jeans. This was exactly the kind of stuff that Jezebel had decided to combat as part of its mission statement. The site wasn't above the celebrity obsession of the era, but they did things differently. Dodai wrote a roundup of weekly print tabloids that was meant to poke fun at their preposterous headlines and subject matter, and to obviate the need to buy them in the first place. Jezebel wasn't above making fun of Star's clothes, but they took a radically different approach to bodies. They called bullshit on things like cellulite close-ups and tried to use SEO to bring new readers into the fold. 
I thought, I didn't have proof of this, a fair number of readers who were new to the site, who were coming in because they came across some sort of celebrity-related post that got linked on another site, right? And they came over to Jezebel, and they probably thought that that's what it was. It was a celebrity site, a celebrity news site with some fashion. In fact, the tagline said, celebrity sex fashion without airbrushing. The idea for me was that we were going to radicalize them (laughs) or politicize them because a lot of the posts we did were not about celebrities. They were about gender politics or electoral politics or the intersection of those two things. They were about race. They were all about all sorts of stuff. And that if they came for the celebrity stuff and stayed, then we might politicize them somehow. When Anna and Dodai talk about Jezebel, they talk about it in the language of feminism and a certain kind of revolution. I was in my early 30s at that point. I thought of the site as maybe appealing to people who are my age and Dodai's age, but also to like the 18-year-olds who stumbled upon it and had only ever been marinating in this Perez Hilton bullshit since they were young teens. I vividly remember reading and loving Jezebel in college, sitting in the basement computer lab where I basically spent all my time writing papers. The site felt like it was written for me. It knew I was interested in celebrities, but it also took me seriously and was funny to boot. But like actually funny, not Perez idiot box funny. One of Jezebel's biggest early stunts was running a leaked, unretouched photo of Faith Hill that appeared on the cover of Red Book magazine. These days, everyone knows about Photoshop and how celebrities use it. Back then, it was a huge revelation, a pulling back of the curtain to show the machinery that was driving a whole lot of insecurity. That cover story is not about Faith Hill, and it's not even about Red Book, and it's not about the editor-in-chief of Red Book. It's about creating a world where you can't look at a photograph of a woman as she is. She has to be... Uh, wrinkle-less, her arm needs to be thinner, and, like, all these things that we, like, created a world where you are not okay the way you are. Even though you're rich and white and blonde and famous, like, you still need these little things. And so, for me, I I felt like these are all just, like, building blocks in a in a larger mission, which is, like, to examine, like, why are things like this in the first place? For women who found their way to Jezebel and away from sites like Perez... I do think there was a profound shift in thinking. The internet giveth, and it taketh away. But the internet also got filled up with lots of new insecurity creation machines, as Anna called women's magazines. There's Instagram and TikTok and incel chat rooms and Twitter and revenge porn. Today's women's publications are generally nicer about looks and different body types. They show models of different races in their pages. A lot of people, though not all, are more careful about how they talk about appearance in public forums. Does that mean things are better than they used to be? I do think it's changed. And that people wouldn't dare, you know, comment or tweet the kind of things that were slightly more, maybe not on Jezebel, maybe on Gawker, you know, where it would be like, they literally called Sarah Jessica Parker horse face, you know, like that was her like nickname on the site and stuff like that. Like you couldn't do that now. Does that stuff feel like a victory to you guys? There's no victory. (laughs) 
<laughs> there's only there's I don't think of it as victory because I don't because we haven't dismantled the patriarchy. So it's just like little, you know, milestones on the road to becoming like slightly more a livable universe. That I think is a victory. Honestly, Dodi, I think that like I think that what we set out to do and what we did and how hard we worked did it render women's magazine somewhat irrelevant? It absolutely did. That is a victory. But do you think it was us or just the internet? No, I think it, a lot of it was us. But you can like get your makeup stuff on Instagram now, you know, or TikTok. Like if you're like, how do I wear a winged eyeliner? Yeah, I'm not saying it didn't like devolve <laughs> in certain ways, but there was a moment there where, yeah, I think that that was a victory. Lindsay Lohan, my contemporary, has spent a lot of time trying to find her place in the world since Hollywood all but cast her out. It hasn't always been pretty, but I wanted to ask her if the past couple of years, with all its reconsiderations of how we viewed and treated young women back in the aughts, had been making her rethink those early years when her star was on the rise. Jessica Simpson wrote a whole very compelling book about it. Misha Barton wrote an essay for Harper's Bazaar about what it was like to live in the spotlight as a child and then teen star. But when I requested an interview with Lohan, her publicist responded, this type of show just hurts people like Lindsay, as it doesn't let her past die there. In many ways, I thought of this show as spelunking through my teenage brain, trying to piece together all the images and hangups and obsessions that shaped my way of thinking, good and bad and wondering if I'll pass any of the really bad stuff I learned onto my daughters. I get why Lindsay doesn't want to talk. The mistakes and embarrassments of my youth didn't stick with me for the rest of my life, which is maybe why I can look back on that era with a certain remove. Lohan's mistakes will live on forever, because the Hollywood woman is stuck in the moment when we valued her most, when she was most beautiful, most new. What was once her blessing too easily becomes her curse. Next time on Just Like Us. Maybe they'd get, you know, 500 bucks for the Britney Spears photo and $100 for all the other photos and then $50 for literally every black person that walked in the door. And that's what they would do. They would just take all the photos of black people and they would just give it to us. They'd give us this, you know, the, the, the raw footage. And then we would look at it and be like, oh, that's Gabrielle Union. You know, that's, you know, uh, Dwayne Wade. That's so-and-so. In my desperate search for, like, uh, some kind of entry into, like, a real career, I was often asked, like, well, why don't you work at, like, Ebony or Essence or something? As though, like, if you're Black, like, that's the, that's your only, you know, like, go work in the, in the ghetto. Kim Kardashian, I think that we were, like, the first people to really, like, kind of really post a lot about her, specifically because she dated a lot of Black men. Just Like Us, The Tabloids That Changed America was written and reported by me, Claire Malone, with story editing by Amanda Dobbins. The show was executive produced by Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our producers are Amanda Dobbins, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Hansdale Shi. The music is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Juliana Ress. Our art director is David Shoemaker. Illustration by Michael Weinstein. Thanks for listening. 
This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 